we deal with a dry period basically every year. And what we've learned, if we keep our drought plan in place at all times, it, it just keeps us a lot more resilient and uh, uh, able to deal with not only from a forage and livestock management standpoint, but from a profitability and, and uh, stability, uh, sustainable standpoint as well. Welcome to the Soil Health Labs Growing Resilience Podcast, engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome back to another episode in the Growing Resilience Podcast. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And we've got another episode with a Zoom call between Buzz and South Dakota producer Jim Faustich. Buzz, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jim? Well, Barrett, I'm not sure that Jim Faustich needs much of an introduction. He's a producer out of Highmore, South Dakota. Um, he's going to introduce himself, his operation. Uh, but what we spoke about in this Zoom call was more about his drought planning um, and then how he drought proofs his farms. So he talks about this, this whole uh, um, philosophy that he has and really he, he comes around to four Ds, diversity, diversity, diversity and determination. Uh, I don't want to say any more and steal Jim's uh, thunder here. He is such a, a good articulate speaker so we're going to let him speak for himself perfect well this is another deep dive into drought management we'll go ahead and get out of the way and let you guys enjoy this episode jim Stitch, really really good to talk to you you are located in highmore south dakota so that's more or less halfway between Pierre and Huron, is that correct? That's pretty correct, yes. Okay. T tell us a little bit about your, um, your operation, Jim. So uh, I'm, I'm Jim Falstick. Uh, uh, my wife, Carol, and I own and operate Daybreak Ranch north of Highmore, South Dakota. Uh, we're a family operation. Uh, bought the ranch from my parents January 1 of 1973. Uh, also involved in the operation as the next generation, my daughter Jackie and her husband Adam Roth, and uh, their two children, Caleb and Alexis. Uh, diversified operation, uh, we're predominantly grass and the cow-calf operation, but we've added a number of sideline enterprises over the year. Uh, kind of as a result of trying to be more diversified and manage around drought. And uh, so we run yearling cattle on grass in the summertime if we have adequate forage and moisture and also have a couple of hunting enterprises. Uh, we also uh, have some cropland that we no-till uh, extensively. Okay, and, and more or less give us an idea of how much that land is in, uh, for instance, the cropland and then your other land. So... Adam and Jackie and Carol and I uh, have a kind of an interesting arrangement. We, we run the entire operation as one operation, uh, whether it's the livestock, the farming side, whatever. Uh, but 
they own part of the ground. Carol and I own part of the ground. We each rent some. Uh, total accumulation of, of acres would be about 10,000, uh, predominantly native grass, but we, uh, we do have about, uh, I suppose, 2,500 acres of farm ground. Okay. And uh, your, um, just curious, your yearling operation then, that's kind of like your clutch mechanism, is it? So you're going to bring yearlings in the spring and, and possibly in the fall again? Is that typically how you do that? Uh, we, we don't bring any in in the fall, just the spring. And uh, we have a flexible agreement with whoever we're grazing for that uh, uh, if we're going to be short of forage for whatever reason with a two-week notice, uh, those, those livestock have to leave the operation. So there's been years such as... Uh, 2006 and 2012 that uh, we never turned any yearlings to grass and okay. of course that uh, that requires a little bit of flexibility and understanding on the other end of the the agreement as well but they also appreciate that uh, they want performance on their cattle and yep. uh, if it's really dry and we run out of grass uh Either we're affecting their performance or potentially the performance of their cattle the following year. So uh, we're lucky to have clientele that are very understanding of, of managing those yearlings and the resources out there. And uh, we feel it's important to work with those kind of uh, individuals. I gotcha, I gotcha. You were talking about uh, you've got mainly native pastures out there. Are you, are you talking mainly native warm seasons or are you also seeing some of the cool, native cool seasons uh, like the porcupine grass and green needle grass and things like that? Yeah, we're, we're predominantly uh, cool season grasses and it's uh, one of the things that we identified back in uh, the drought and economic cycle uh, concerns of the 70s and 80s that we needed to change. Um, I uh, hired a retired NRCS range conservationist that, that did a resource inventory and advised us on things. And one of the, well, actually he identified two major concerns. Number one, as we were spending too much time putting up hay and, and uh, in turn hauling it to the livestock instead of letting them do the work. That was one of the big concerns. The other one was the, the lack of diversity and especially with the taller warm season grasses um, because of past management uh, we had the shorter warm seasons like buffalo grass and blue grama uh, but when it came to switch grass uh, side oats grama uh, big blue stem uh, pretty much non-existent and we actually planted some marginal farm ground uh, that wasn't real productive. Uh, in a lot of cases, it was go background or old hay, hay land. Uh, actually renovated it and planted it to a warm season natives so that we could take some of the pressure off of our, our cool season uh, pastures that we were trying to stimulate the comeback of warm seasons and for diversities. So we needed those places where we could go to, to take the pressure off of off of where we were trying to improve our diversity. Uh, so we've, we've improved it. Obviously, uh, those areas we've planted have a high um, amount of warm season grasses, but even in our, 
our existing cool seasons, we are getting a number of warm seasons to come back with management and rest. Okay. When you're talking about existing cool season, you're, you're, are you also talking about things like smooth brome and Kentucky? Well, that's, that's probably one of our biggest challenges when it comes to, uh, frankly, managing drought and yep. but also uh, uh, improving our rangelands is uh, the invaders and, and brome and bluegrass would be the, the two main ones. Right. Uh, it's a huge problem in the state of South Dakota. Everywhere I go, I see brome grass and bluegrass and in a lot of cases, crested wheatgrass. And they are so aggressive, uh, uh, so hardy. Uh, that's why they were brought into this country. And and it's a problem. It's it's definitely taking over uh, a lot of the native range. And uh, is one of our goals to try to slow that down as much as we can. So it's another reason we bring the yearlings in. Uh, we can take advantage of those spring flushes, the big producing years like last year with both brome and uh, uh, sweet clover, and uh, if we wouldn't had the, the extra yearling cattle uh, to help hold that down uh, early in the year, uh, we, we'd have lost a lot of quality and and uh, probably actually forage use for the year because of the way it decreases in quality late summer and into the winter. Got it. So, in other words, the the yearlings are really able to open up the canopy and reduce the moisture consumption that uh, will then be used by your warm seasons, which come sort of 45 days later or something like that. Is that more or less the concept? As, as well as um, a part of that goal is to not let brome grass go to seed, of course. Gotcha. Oh, gotcha. All right. So it stays in vegetative growth. Right. Yeah. Okay. But, good. but you're right. If we don't hold down those invaders early in the season, the the warm seasons really don't stand a chance. Later gotcha. On. And and it helps the 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 native cools too, like uh, western wheatgrass and green needle, as you mentioned, and, and those species as well. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's nice. Uh, I I've seen a little bit of porcupine grass and and. Um, uh, green needle grass, but but not very much as as native cool season. So I guess, I guess we still have a long way to go. Uh, well, Jim, you and I talked about a couple of components of your drought management plan, and you've alluded to that. Will you be able to sort of describe a couple of the planks, if you will, of the plat the, the platform, the planks of the platform of your drought management management plan? Because I know it's not just something that you write down. Uh, it, it isn't. And, and the interesting thing, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we went through the drought of 1976, another dry year through the 70s. But the, the 1976 drought is kind of the benchmark for this area. Uh, the old timers around at that time said that that was worse than they even went through in the 30s. Uh, a, a lot of the loss of forage in the 30s was due to grasshoppers more than than uh, actual drought itself. And I and I think there's a huge message right in that statement. When we come up with a drought plan, uh, maybe a more appropriate name for it would be disaster plan. Uh, there's been some bad fires over the years, uh, insect problems, hail. 
it don't necessarily have to be drought to uh, lose a considerable amount of forage and have devastating effects uh, on your production and the landscape. So um, anyhow, 1976 was kind of our, our benchmark year. And when we learned we needed to deal with drought in a more uh, economical way than we did through that one, we ended up buying hay. Uh, that's a no-win deal uh, in almost any circumstance. Not maybe not ever, never, never say never, but uh, it's, it's typically uh, a losing situation. So each drought that's come along, I'd say, has been a learning experience for us, and we've added to it. And probably the, the real take-home message for our operation is that we keep the drought plan in place at all times. Uh, I can honestly say that uh, any year in my recollection, uh, 2019 was the only year that we've had excessive moisture for the whole year. Uh, that particular year, we mowed the lawn continuously through the summer. It's never happened before. Um, 2020 was, was close to it, but it was because of the carryover moisture in the wet fall of 2019. So. 2019 was uh, the real the real wet year. Other than that, we deal with a dry period. Depends on the magnitude and the length uh, of time, uh, basically every year. And what we've learned, if we keep our drought plan in place at all times, uh, it, it just keeps us a lot more resilient and uh, uh, able to deal with not only uh, from a forage and livestock management standpoint, but from a profitability and and uh, stability, uh, sustainable standpoint as well. Okay. So tell us about, I'm assuming you have something on paper. So can you give us some of those elements that you have on paper, Jim? Well, and of course, flexibility is a key part of it. So, uh, and planning, obviously. Uh, yeah. Anytime you put things on paper or uh, uh, have a system, if you will, uh, it gets a little too rigid to suit me. Uh, yep. So our plan is a little more loose, probably. Uh, we've, we've got some obvious uh, standards. Yes. And, and one thing, you know, I, I think a lot of people tend to not worry about drought until they officially know they're well into it. And uh, we take kind of the opposite approach. Uh, and obviously, uh, where we're at uh, here in February of 2021, we're in a drought. Uh, if you look at the US drought monitor, uh, we have been in some stage of drought since last fall. Actually, here at the ranch, we haven't had any significant moisture other than the snowfall uh, in, in October, which was uh, pretty unusual to get a foot of snow in October, but that's really the only major moisture we've had since the 1st of August. So we are in drought, and uh, we think that emphasizes the importance of, of uh, starting to monitor the previous year for the following year. In other words, October 1 is one of our uh, key times, our trigger dates, if you will, uh, for the following year. What's our moisture situation? What's our our uh, 
our standing forage situation, what's our stored forage situation, what's our financial situation. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of uh, monitoring points that we look at well in advance. Uh, and of course, at that point, we don't really know what the following year is going to provide for moisture, but we know where we're at as far as uh, uh, our, our resources with moisture in the soil profile. And uh, again, what we have for forage. If we've just been through a dry year and our pastures are already uh, uh, grazed uh, more than normal or more than we'd like or over 50%, didn't leave any uh, um, pastures that we didn't graze late season or, or for the year, we, we try to uh, uh, stockpile forage. And uh, one of our goals is to have a year's worth of forage on the ranch at all times in one form or the other, or moisture enough that we know we're going to grow it. And uh, so we start evaluating that, like I say, October 1st of the, of the previous year. And then uh, it's been documented both both by observation and scientifically through South Dakota State University, that the moisture we get or have in April of the year is a direct reflection on our forage production and, in fact, uh, pounds of beef produced for the year. So uh, by May 1 is another trigger date uh, that starts raising concern and, and we may start putting some of our drought contingency plan in place at that time. But May 1 is uh, where the rubber really hits the road, that if, we, uh, if we're in severe drought or whatever degree of drought at that point, that, that triggers what we're going to do from there on. <clears throat> And so that's, and, and I say May 1, that's typical go-to-grass time in central South Dakota. And so that's when we'd make the decision to, to probably not uh, take yearlings to grass if we were really dry. And trust me, we would already give our clients a heads up by the middle of April that the, the way things look, this was probably going to happen. And, but right. then, then it does or doesn't happen by May 1. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, in other words, you, you've already got a good idea um, at this point of time that you're not going to necessarily be able to take yearlings in this year. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Well, that that's interesting. Now, there's a second element that you talked about, at least one second element that you and I discussed yesterday, Jim, and, and that's... Uh, you're building resilience into your system. You're you're obviously not season-long or continuous grazers. Um, what is your system, the way you manage uh, your rotational system, your essentially your adaptive grazing management system, bring to the table in terms of drought managing your operation? Well, I. Our grazing management, uh, and, and I'm a huge proponent of diversity, regardless of whatever aspect you look at, whether it's uh, uh, the species growing in the native grass or grass seeding you're putting in or cover crop, you can go right down the list, enterprise mix, whatever, uh, diversity is important. So so we, we know that the diversity we have out there is, is going to help us make it through um, challenging times. Uh, we, we know that we uh, 
are, are building soil health by having that diversity out there. We know we're building soil health and retaining carbon by um, having more residual, uh, more ground cover, more armor, um, whatever whatever uh, title you want to put on that. But we, uh, we we know the value of soil health and water retention to make it through these these dry times. And of course, uh, regardless, that can only last so long. And uh, so one of our concerns is not to overgraze even on a on a dry year. And that's part of the reason that we have, uh, hopefully, uh, on a year-to-year basis, have pastures that are not used, say, uh, in our rotation after uh, June or July. We'll stockpile that residual grass out there to help catch snow, uh, help drought-proof the operation from the standpoint of, of uh, having that stockpiled forage out there stockpiled moisture, stockpiled soil health, uh, and the list goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're going from, say, a, a sort of a very close to monoculture stand to diversity, uh, what is that path? I mean, um, if, if somebody's kind of continuous grazing, got mainly the increasing cool seasons, what is that path that that person's going to take to create those warm seas, or to create the, the, the greater diversity that you have? Uh, determination. <laughs> uh, it, it's a very slow process, uh, you know, and as I already mentioned, I started on, on this venture in the 80s of drought proofing the operation, trying to be more diversified, uh, bring a number of the forbs and warm season, tall warm season grasses uh, back. And it is a very slow process. And of course, uh, management, I think of management intensive grazing being a very important tool. But timing of doing that and rest is probably even a bigger key. And uh, of course, any cooperation you can get from Mother Nature is very much appreciated and, and helpful in the process. But it, it takes, um, like I said, real determination uh, I, I think at a at a time when it's uh, uh, almost uh, acceptable and and encouraged to get the sprayer out if things aren't going right, that's the last thing you want to do uh, when, when you're trying to change these uh, native grass uh, ecosystems over. Because as soon as you start doing that, you're taking out some valuable resources and. And I've, I've heard an, a number of people, and in fact, we have ourselves uh, on, on some of this uh, depleted hay ground where we've gone in and completely killed out the, the plant community and just started over. I, I would really discourage that um, on uh, especially true native pastures. I, I believe they can be turned around with some effort. One of the things we did, uh, we had some areas that did have a, a good component of, of big blue stem that was native and growing there that we were increasing, but we did move some of that seed around and uh, found that to be fairly successful. In other words, if you've had um, a season long pasture that's been abused for a century, obviously uh, 
you got a real challenge in front of you. And uh, we didn't spray it out. We didn't uh, try interseeding, but we did did scatter some seed out there. When we had cows in the pasture, I might add, and let them do the planting. And it took probably five years for that to show up in, in any amount, but it was successful. And uh, Mother Nature and these native plant species have uh, real resilience when it comes to establishment as long as as long as you treat it in a in a way so that it can and and watch what uh, what mother nature is giving you to help you along well jim before i let you go are there any questions that i haven't asked you or anything like that you'd like to tell us well the two or three uh, most important factors when it comes to making a drought plan uh, for fellow producers that I'd recommend. You know, the first thing I could say is it'd be diversity, 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 but we need to be a little more um, uh, open-minded than that. But we have to have planning in there. Uh, we have to have resource inventory in there. If you don't know you know, they, they could listen to my comments, but it's different for each operation. The, the resources available, whether it's labor, land, uh, water, whatever, are all different for each person. So there, there isn't really a cookie cutter, but there are some things that are very important regardless of where your operation is. And I'd say number one is have a plan. Uh, number two, know your resource inventory. Uh, and, and then take care of some of the things like rest and stuff uh, that are so important to, to move things along. And you just can't leave out diversity. I, that's that's the one that has uh, uh, really made our operation. Maybe the next one's different, but I think it's something, uh, you know, back in uh, probably the 80s, 90s, it was all about being specialized. And we've gone that route and we're paying for it now. And that's why the principles of soil health recommend bringing livestock back on the operation, recommend diversity, recommend rotation, all things that Gramp and Grammon had figured out, and we've kind of dropped the ball on it. I, I think we've hit on it plenty, but obviously the value of soil health, uh, and I, I think it's uh, it's concerning when so many of the day-to-day -day issues that we deal with, whether it's flooding or drought or uh, uh, insect problems, I mean, the list goes on and on. You uh, loss of species, uh, uh, you can just go down the list. So much of it can be, and it's not an overnight thing to happen, but so much of it could be cured by emphasizing soil health and diversity on the landscape. And proper land use. I mean, uh, we're so busy in agriculture trying to drive a square peg through a round hole uh, instead of working with nature and, and using land for its, its best intended use. Uh, but so much of that, along with, with soil health emphasis, could be a, a big cure for a lot of the problems we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems you know that seems to be something that's come out of the Dakotas since I first visited in 2010, and then uh, with uh, I was up in Manda in North Dakota, or at least Burley County, North Dakota, and then uh, coming down to Dakota Lakes in 2013. That sort of opened my eyes 
Yeah. Burley well, County and Dakota Lakes. So. Yeah, yes. Especially with a character like Dwayne Beck. Yes. <laughs> well, Jim Falstich, it's it's been a real pleasure. Um, I'm hoping you and I can meet in person sometime soon. And I, I want to just say thank you uh, for your time. Well, thank you. And uh, appreciate all you're doing to help move uh, the movement along. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Buzz, what do you think about those four Ds? Four Ds. <laughs> diversity, 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 and determination. Yeah, Jim was uh, really keen on those things. But uh, what I really like is if you listen to the podcast uh, that we had or the talk that we had with Jim Falstich and then uh, also with Mitch Faulkner, you see how much overlap there is. And so you're getting two very different perspectives, one from a practitioner who sees a lot of uh, producers. And of course, um, uh, Mitch is a little bit further out west. Uh, Jim is uh, a little bit closer. He's in Highmore, but like, like he said, uh, where he farms, he has a little bit less rain than Highmore itself. So I, I just really like the different perspectives that the practitioners and the producers give us. And we really wanted these things for, for those of you who, whose interest was piqued from the videos and maybe some of the written materials, uh, we hope that this has been educational for you. Yeah, and we have a lot of free resources for you guys. The NRCS South Dakota has a lot of stuff out there for ranchers and producers. Uh, we've actually got two links in the bottom of the show notes here that will take you to a drought management tool as well as to our page, Growing Resilience, on the SDNRCS website. Yep, and don't forget that um, the grazing management specialists, uh, the rangeland management specialists, are available to talk to you about drought management and drought management planning. So they're a free resource. You can't afford not, or I guess the question here is, can you afford not to have a drought management plan? Good point, Buzz. Well... That wraps up this episode. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And we'll check in with you guys next time. Once again, you're listening to the Growing Resilience podcast series, sponsored by the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service and produced by Soil Health Labs, based out of the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina. <laughs>